everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And the purpose of that, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And this is what Paul's spending his life doing, he says. I'm working hard for this. I strive with all the energy I've got that God gives me to do what? To do this thing I just said. To do this. The church is, it's supposed to be, a learning institution. Did you know that? The church is supposed to be an institute of learning. A teaching institution. Now, it's more than that. The church isn't merely a school. But as we sometimes say, while it's more than that, it is no less than that. Not one bit less than that. It is a... It is an institute of higher learning. It's the highest learning, isn't it? Our subject is the highest subject. Our topics are the most important topics. And we are about that business. You know, our founder was a rabbi. That's how the people knew him. That's how they addressed him. That's what he seemed most like to them, aside from when they started to see the miraculous things he could do. And then, of course, he transcended rabbi became something bigger than just rabbi because no rabbi could do those things. But he was still called rabbi repeatedly. He spent all of that time in that environment. Galatians 4.4 says he came at the time God appointed and it says he was born under the law. So he's born in this tradition, in this context. Jesus as a young boy had been taught the scriptures. And knew them really well throughout his boyhood. Because, you know, that that law, that tradition in which he was born, that he lived in, had its customs going way, way back. You go way back to the instructions given to the people, to Israel. And they, they were supposed to be teaching the next generation all the time. It's, Yahweh has these people and he knows their lifespans are short. And everything he's bestowed to them will just be gone like that. It'll just be gone if it's not passed along, if if the training doesn't continually happen. And so that's why Israel was told in specific terms, teach these commandments, teach them to your kids. When you're coming in, when you're going out at all times, make sure this is getting passed along. Moses won't be here forever. Who's the next Moses? We can't just they can't all just pass away and that's all that's over with. Time moves fast. And can a nation completely change? Oh, yes, it can. It can change overnight. It can be dramatically different in terms of the sum total of all the perspectives and beliefs, the values that are held, the common thoughts of the people. They can be utterly different than they were 50 years prior. That happens easily. Jesus comes along as a rabbi, and he teaches his students to be teachers themselves. He told his disciples to go and make disciples. You sort of get the picture. Even the Great Commission we talk about, we think of its missional worldwide scope. We sometimes, you know, it sort of trails off. Yes, go everywhere. Get out there. Go every place. That's not the end of it, though. He says, teaching them to observe everything that I commanded. So if you just go, good, that's good, you went. 
But but there's the work just when you go and you get there, that's the beginning of the work and not the end of the work. It's not like, well, I obeyed. I went. Here I am. That's just the start. The end result has to be that you present everyone there mature in Christ. That's what your, your real end goal is. You're just the beginning of that. This is why from the earliest, earliest times in the church, the church was always busy on this, teaching people and doing everything that it took to teach the people. That's why the church built schools. You know, it wasn't always the case that people were inclined to build schools, to really formalize or institutionalize this kind of thing. But the church was busy about literacy. She spread literacy everywhere, everywhere the gospel has ever went. Literacy has been part of what went. Why? Because we read a word written. These things were written that you may know. But if I can't read them, how can I know? Well, I can hear the audible word. That is good. But why not? The goal being beyond that, that I will read them myself. And so the church has been on the cutting edge, really, of literacy, of the building of the schools and just and the big institutions. The great learning institutions in Europe were, were church schools. They were Christian schools. Where do you think Oxford came from? Read about its origins. In fact, you might be surprised. I think a lot of people today would be at the founding of, of the great, you know, the Ivy League universities in the U.S. Do you know who founded them? Well, you got a minute? I'll tell you. So think about these schools. Harvard, okay, we've got to start with Harvard, 1636. By the way, side note here, it's interesting to me. You know, apparently they, those settlers in Massachusetts had only got there in 1630. It, so, so within six years, they've already built Harvard. Apparently it's a priority. Now, of course, they didn't land and think, they, weren't a bunch of, they were not a bunch of aristocrats or elites who thought, you know, we need to build Harvard, gentlemen. They weren't sitting around, sipping their tea, saying, why, this place is so dull, we need Harvard. That's not, that was, Harvard wasn't what you think of Harvard. That wasn't what they foresaw. They just thought, we need a quality school, because we, they knew that fundamental to what their life would be would be passing the culture on. Passing the fullness of their culture. And their culture was Christ-saturated. It was a biblical culture. And they wanted to instill it and pass it on. And that meant formalizing it. And so they built a school. Long, long, long before that. I don't know that they would have imagined that someday it would be the stereotype we see. You know, that they would have pictured, yes, it will be, you know, elite, uh, wealthy, very connected um, and privileged people in you know designer sweaters on the rowing team, whatever you know, whatever you, whatever they, that's not what they pictured, and they certainly couldn't have imagined, uh, you know, the institute of wokery that are, that these schools have become. I don't even think they would have had any. That couldn't have been anywhere near their radar, what they would have imagined. But they simply thought we need a school. So and so these Puritans founded Harvard College. And by the way, all of these schools had mottos. It was the thing, to have a motto. 
And most of them were in Latin, but their meanings are are hard to uh, explain away for, uh, for the secularist of today. The original motto of Harvard was Veritas Christo et Ecclesia, truth for Christ and the church. They're not really they're not really flying that banner too much over there. These up there today. I don't think they've got that emblazoned or anything. College of William and Mary was founded in 1692. I'm going in chronological order. 1692 by an Anglican minister, James Blair. How about Yale, 1701, founded by Congregationalists? Their motto was came from Psalm 27, light and truth. Princeton was originally the College of New Jersey, founded in 1746 by Presbyterians. Their original motto was Vitum Mortuus Redo, I restore life to the dead. Quote, and then they later changed it to Die Sum Numine Viget, under God's power she flourishes. 1754, Columbia was founded up in New York by Anglicans. Their motto was, In thy light we shall see the light. Brown University in Rhode Island by the Baptists in 1764. Their motto was Deo Speramos, in God we hope. Rutgers was originally Queen's College. It was founded by the Reverend Theodore Freelinghusen on behalf of the Dutch Reformed Church in 1766. Here was their motto, quote, Son of righteousness, shine upon the West also. And then Dartmouth in New Hampshire, founded again by those Congregationalist believers in 1769. The motto was a voice crying out in the wilderness. How about that? The expectations, once upon a time, were pretty high for those who would be any kind of leaders in society. They, they thought that those who are instruct, those who are in the positions of leadership in the church and in other places too, ought to have this, must have this. I've mentioned to you before Wesley's address to the clergy that he gave in London in 1756. And, you know, Wesley, we know it's often talked about how critical he and, and the earliest group were, his brother and the others, about the worldliness of ministers in their time, sort of the moral lapses, the lack of holiness. But the fact is, Wesley also thought that they had a problem in terms of just their knowledge base. He thought some of the ministers don't know anything. They slept through school. They just they've been lazy about their intellect just as much as the, it's it tends to go together, you know. People who are slack in these ways tend to have sloppy minds, sloppy in terms of how they express their emotions, then self-control kind of wanes, and and then they're just mired in all kinds of sins of every of every sort. These things tend to go together. It, it's a lack of wisdom, which has to do with self-control, all the fruit of the Spirit, and they ain't got none of it. And that's what Wesley saw. And so Wesley gave this address to the clergy. And it's remarkable where he set this bar. He told them that every servant of God should have, quote, a good understanding, a clear apprehension, a sound judgment, a capacity for reasoning. He said, can a fool cope with all the men that know not God 
and with the spirits of darkness? Can a fool do that? It's a rhetorical question. And then he said, how will he be able, when the need requires, to answer a fool according to his folly? How frequent is this need, Wesley said. How frequent is the need to address these things? And of course, then he went on to talk about all the things they ought to know, including the Bible and its languages and its background and etc. and the history of the church and even secular history and various thinkers and all kinds of the leading schools of thought and the sciences and on he went. And people may say, yeah, well, you know, Wesley, after all, I mean, he was an Oxford boy. So again, maybe this is a sort of form of elitism. I mean, maybe he was too ivory tower. You are aware, aren't you, of the kind of people Wesley ministered to throughout all those years. Who he went to, who he who, who was around him, who he, the foundation of the ministries everywhere, the societies that he built. It was the most blue-collar people. Just like those, uh, just like those settlers who founded Harvard. They weren't a bunch of elitists. They were, they were just salt of the earth, everyday people. And Wesley was not. He was. He was not up here. He wasn't saying those things because he was just some uppity intellectual type. Wesley aimed his ministry directly at the lower classes. He thought, no, no. We can, we can disciple everyone. We are here to disciple everyone. Not just the so-called cream of the crop. And honestly, you have to uh, wonder, I shudder really to think, of, of all of those founders of those universities and Wesley and people like that. What they would have thought seeing the state of affairs now. If they saw, for example, the books that have led Christian book sales for the last decade... If they saw which preachers today have the biggest TV audience or the biggest arenas full of listeners. Boy, I just don't know. I think I kind of do know what they might have thought about that. The church today is often untaught or poorly taught. In that way, we just mirror the culture, the shallowness of our larger culture. That's how, And we're, we're, just, we're just mirroring that. When I say untaught and poorly taught, I mean, neither one of those is good. I mean, untaught is simply the neglect, the, the lack of any effort, really, just not attempting to really disciple people, not really a concern for it. Instead, just the concern to pack a house, you know, entertain, you know, um, have a quality band on stage, whatever. Uh, but, but really, if you say, well, would you like lifelong, rock-solid, mature disciples to result from this? I'm sure, yeah, that'd be nice. It'd be great. But I'm not really doing anything to bring that about. So that, that leaves people untaught. That leaves people within the church untaught. So in other words, there's a void there. They've not been told why they believe any of the things they're supposed to believe. And they will ultimately find people who will, who will give them reasons to believe other things. Because of the vacuum will be filled. They need a rabbi in their life, and they're going to find one. Uh, but it will be in all the wrong places. So there's untaught, there's also poorly taught. Some churches are about the business of teaching things that are flat wrong. <gasps> How can you say that? You can't criticize. I mean, 
Some doctrine is false doctrine. And it is the case that sometimes people are taught things that are simply false and dangerous and not true. There was an article a few years ago. The headline said this, Survey finds most American Christians are actually heretics. That's what the headline said. Um, it said that there was a survey of around 3,000 people, Lifeway conducted, commissioned by Ligonier Ministries, found that although Americans still overwhelmingly identify as Christian in one way or another, startling percentages of the nation embrace ancient errors that were once condemned by all major Christian traditions. Um, and so, you know, it's... it's uh, some, one writer quoted who did the study said if Americans took a theology exam, their only hope would, of passing would be if God graded on a curve um, to be graded over against their, their fellows. Ross Douthat, a New York Times writer, Roman Catholic, wrote the book recently. He said, he said we're a nation of heretics. Is that what like the common beliefs, more than half of the people in their survey, for example, um, said that they agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. It's known as Arianism. The Council of Nicaea condemned that in 325. Two-thirds of them said people are basically good by nature. 56% of them agreed that the Holy Spirit is a divine force, not a person. Um, half of them couldn't name the first five books in the Bible. Uh, nearly half believed John the Baptist was one of the twelve disciples. 60% couldn't name five of the Ten Commandments. 82% of them agreed that the Bible teaches that uh, there's a verse that says God helps those who help themselves. And this is my favorite one. 12% even agreed uh, or believed that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. What? Now that's just 12%, but brother, 12% is too high. Too high for people professing to be church-going Christians. And you know what? I can tell you this firsthand. And there's a sort of a little secret I'll let you in on. I've taught classes for, you know, 15 years in different schools. And so, you know, in the classrooms, it's the kind of subjects I've taught. People identify themselves a lot as to what, who they are, where they come from, where they stand. And I'll just tell you that, you know, having heard the opinions and graded the papers of countless people who identify themselves as Christian and will even say, oh yeah, I go to such and such church. Um, it's not, it's not, it's not good. It's not good because I hear what they believe and read what they think. And well, well why does this matter? I mean, am I, am I, is this, is this to browbeat us? I mean, if you just come in here to, to make us all feel bad, well, you know, we could ask that question every week, though, couldn't we? The point of the scripture is not just to make us feel bad. When it comes to this, when it comes to this topic of discipleship, uh, any more than every other topic. If we come in here and talk about prayer, the point of the Bible isn't to make us all feel lousy because we don't pray very much. And, and if we come in here and talk about being kind to others, the point of that isn't just to make us all feel lousy because we're not always that kind to people. Or outreach, you see what I'm saying? This is just like all the other topics that the Bible addresses. It, yes, it holds a standard. And yes, we are reminded of who we are meant to be and to be convicted at where it applies and to strive. It's, but it's not, it's not simply to leave us um, discouraged. 
It's quite the opposite. To encourage us. Why does this matter? Because the goal of the church, our very task, the goal, is disciple-making. It's what Jesus himself spent his precious few years on earth doing. To present everyone as complete, teleos, right? Complete, mature, a finished product. Well, now, you might think, well, we're not really finished. No, we're not really perfectly finished, of course. But you know what we mean. To go from here to here. Here's what I was, and here's, by the grace of God, what I was able to become as God worked in me, as I worked out what he worked in. And we do that by, as it says, teaching and admonishing, and teaching everyone, by the way. Notice the word everyone in that passage. Everyone, you say? Everyone with all wisdom? You know, a lot of churchgoers believe that actual disciple I mean real, full-fledged discipleship, is the mark of the few called to ministry. Just the few that are called to ministry. You take most churches and you get a young person who suddenly is a real zealous student of the Bible and learns it. On his or her own, learning it, diving in, in depth, reading other books, learning church history. Suddenly they're interested in theology. Suddenly this young person is the kind of person who at work, you know, they can really, they have good discussions about these matters with their unchristian friends and so on. Do you know that most people in that church will assume that that young person must have a special ministry calling. How else can we explain this? I mean, you must be destined for some kind of ordination, full-time ministry. Otherwise, this doesn't make sense. I mean, learning like that? It's be, you know, you look at the pastoral letters of Titus chapter 2 talking about it says it says let the older men in the church not just you, minister, not just you, person on staff, not just you, trained, ordained, however you want to put it. No, it says, let the older men of the church, and then it uses all these adjectives, be sober-minded, sound in, their, sound in faith, it says. And then it says, let the older women be teachers of what is good. Teachers of what is... The expectation is that all of the believers are enrolled in this serious program of discipleship. Jesus, you know, he took these 12 ordinary guys again. He didn't say, I need some guys who have really tested well. I need the guys with the high IQs who really knocked it out. Made all the, I need all straight A guys because I'm, I'm going to disciple some guys and I need, I need the best of the best. There's an entrance exam to be one of my disciples. No, Jesus took ordinary guys. Just every day, they're just out fishing, you know, doing doing the regular old grunt work, hauling in the food. He took those guys. And what did he do with those guys? Day after day after day, he poured truth and wisdom into their minds. And in doing that, he reshaped their thinking. He reframed their perspective. He reoriented their understanding of everything. And how'd that go for those guys? Did that change those men? It turned those ordinary guys 
into the missionaries, preachers, teachers, apostles, gospel writers, epistle writers, the ones who turned the world upside down, were those ordinary men. That's why this is important. That's why this is the calling of the church, to do that. Because then Jesus turned around and said, okay, you know, my few years is up. I'm out. Now you go. Now you do it. You do what you saw me do. And so this, you know, this, it's, it's hard to think this way, I know, especially in our day and age. Who has time for this? But apparently reading through all of what we what we're given as instructions to the church, we're left with, I don't know any other impression I'm left with here, that it is the job of the church to have school in session at all times, to be, it's a discipleship process, ongoing, all the time. And of course, the other thing is, if we don't do this, if we neglect to do this, then according to 2 Timothy, well-known verse 2.15, if we do not study to show ourselves approved, then it says we will end up being put to shame. If we study well, if, we, if we're true disciples, then it says you will be a worker who does not have to be ashamed. But how many of us in here, if we're just really honest, can think of so many occasions where we walked away with a sense of shame? It happens to Christians. This is sort of a routine experience of Christians. A routine experience that in trying to do outreach and trying to, you know, span the gap of between themselves and unbelievers, people in their family, people in their school, people where they work, friends and neighbors, whoever, close friends, that they they, they always it always ends with them feeling lousy. And lousy partly because they feel guilty and they have a sense of shame because I should be able to do this better. I can't answer any questions that anybody asks me. I have no ability to defend any of the things I say I believe. I'm not sure why I even believe them. You know, I grew up uh, hearing very clearly what Christians believe and ought to believe. Thankfully, the church, you know, not everyone has, you know, hey, you're lucky if this was you. But it was a church in which at least the beliefs were sound. What I didn't always have and what I couldn't do is explain to you, why do I believe that stuff? And if someone tested me on it, I wouldn't have much to say other than, well, I just do. We just do. And you should do. And you should also. But why should I? Because you're, God said so. Because you're a sinner. Yeah, but how do I know that? What, what's my... How do you, I mean, you know, my, uh, my Muslim friend over here, he says similar things. What do you got going for you? I don't know. I just know I'm right. In other words, I, I didn't have any good reasons. That came later. That came later. But I, I'll tell you this. Long before it came, I wanted that. So I was sort of craving it. And, and in a way, even though it was a, sound, a church with sound stances, they didn't have any heretical beliefs. I was a little bit starving. I was a student without the curriculum, you know? Because I thought, yeah, the sermons, you know, they're nice. They, you know, the pulpit gets pounded and 
some sins get taught against, and that's good. I shouldn't be doing those sins. And, you know, I'm warned against falling off the path, and, and there's some practical things, and, like, and that's good for my life, but, but I'm kind of starving. Now, I didn't get it until I became sore, more self-taught. I, I learned that there was a wide, wide world. By the way, this is before the Internet. But I learned there was a wide world of, of, teach, of good, solid teaching out there. There was a place called a Christian bookstore. There used to be bookstores. Mardell still exists, I guess. Doesn't it? Yeah. But I, for, for, for now, for now. I mean, you know, Christian bookstores, there used to be a lot more of them. And their shelves were loaded because you couldn't go to Amazon to find. And I, after a while, I started making that where I hung out. So all those workers knew me by name. I didn't have enough money to buy all those books. But, this, but I found out I could, I could get you know, a lot of reading done just standing there. <laughs> and, uh, and I read stuff. And then I found then there was radio. It was Christian radio. Oh, so I could be challenged. Oh, I like this. Who's this guy? Swindoll or who? You know, oh, there's this other guy. Oh, there's this guy over here. You know? You know that study we were doing on Wednesdays uh, where we were listening to R.C. Sproul? I heard him when I was a kid. I didn't know who he was. But I thought, but I just thought, this sounds solid. I've been looking, I've been hungry for a little bit of meat. And I got some meat here. So I was, so I tuned in. And then, of course, I went, I went off to OBU. And then the, my whole world just blew wide open. Like, oh, it's like, whoa, the church has a long, rich history. Man, the theology pool is deeper than I thought it went. And that was, and, and so all of that was life-changing. But in, the year, in all the years since, I wondered, why did it take me so long to find this? Why did I have to work at it like this? Why wasn't it more readily available? And you know, Christians spend a lot of time thinking about all the differences in the churches. And, you know, our particular tastes. And, well, this church over here does it like this. And, and sometimes we have come to associate kind of crazy teachings and goofy teachings with the styles of church that are more emotional, you know, the sort of neo-Pentecostal, because that seems to be where the prosperity message has taken the most root. But we've got to keep some things straight in our head. It's not the expression of emotion in the worship that, that is any kind of issue. It, it's not the fact that people jump around or whatever. It's the teaching that matters. Did you know that Wesley, the man I mentioned who was an Oxford-trained Anglican originally and who had all these roots and this depth and who thought that we should train people like that and who ran sort of discipleship styles of ministry, did you know that what, what a lot of his critics called him and that group, they said that they're enthusiasts. <gasps> oh, what's that mean? That was a that was a bad word. The other ministers were like, I believe he's an enthusiast. And that was some kind of put down. They were looking down their noses at him. Why? What did that mean? Enthusiasm was sort of a negative term to me, like, ah, your his movement is all like emotion and because see, in in the meetings of those early Methodists. People cried out and shrieked and tears were shed and all kinds of emotions were shared. I know that's hard to believe because, you know, that ain't exactly the trademark of a Methodist church these days. It wasn't the trademark of the church I was raised in either. You know, a lot of that's cultural. I, I, I later thought, I later looking back, I later thought, our church, my church services I grew up in were, I guess, kind of boring by comparison to some of the other ones. But then I thought I knew what boring was. Then I went out to Utah and I saw how the Mormon worship services go. And... Uh, Brother, you ain't seen boring. Anyway, don't, enough of that. I mean, dull. Uh, you know, but it's stylistic. They like it. Um, 
But you see, even those what, what does that tell us, by the way? That, that when Wesley preached, all this crazy stuff happened. And when Whitfield preached, you had shrieks and emotion and people... Oh, we're going to criticize that? Listen, the basis for judging these things is the teaching. It is the teaching. So you could have a dignified worship service where everyone is, <clears throat> you know, no one acts out too in too crazy a way. And the teaching could be rubbish. It could be just rank heresy of whatever sort. By contrast, you can have a church where, you know, the people, they move around a little more than what you're used to. And it's a little, you just, you weren't raised in this. And the people dance around and jump around and do whatever. You're like, I don't know. But if the teaching is good, God bless them. If the teaching is solid, I'm all for it. Just let the teaching be sound and let the and let the Spirit do what the Spirit does and as long as the teaching is sound. I think that's how to reorient our minds, to begin to think like that. Because you know what? A well-discipled group will... that The guardrails, that will be their guardrails. That will be what keeps them in on track. Will be that they are well-discipled. But a church without that, I mean, who knows where it'll end up. I can't forecast. It could go any direction. Ten years from now, I don't know what it'll look like and what they'll be doing over there. Because they got no guardrails. And the culture is going to pull them this way and that. So this is our challenge today. This is our challenge going forward. Now, what does it look like and how do we do it? Uh, look, we're busy people. Uh, we're all busy. Busier than ever before. And there are more distractions available to us than there once were. That just means it's more of a concerted effort on our part. Each of us individually to take that time to clear away all the other stuff out of our minds and give real time to good Bible study, by which I don't just mean a quickie. A verse a day keeps the devil away. You know what I mean? Like, what's my verse a day? Oh, that's wonderful. And I'm on. I'm on with my day. I mean, that's just not going to do it. I need to carve away some time. I need to I need to be able to contemplate it. Chew on it. Think it through. What do some other people say about this? What are some of the perspectives on this? What are other let's cross-reference it? Other places in the Bible. Does it say that same thing? What could that word mean? I'm gonna study that word for a minute. What is it? You know, I'm just a richer, fuller time of study. And 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 what's wrong with a little free time in some of the Christian history to understand where it's come from? And some of the biographies of great missionaries and saints. That encourages us to do that. There's no sin against that. You know, you you can even read theology as a layperson. <gasps> yeah, I said it. You can. You can. You can go all the way. You can just you can bite off any 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 piece of steak you want. Eat it up. You know, it's it's a free, it's a free and open for you to do. And then of course here. Maybe, you know, the calling on all of us to eventually get to the point where we are teachers. How can we be teachers? You could be teachers one-on-one. There's one-on-one mentorship. That's discipleship. There's one-on-three. There's, you know, and then, or there's larger class settings within the church, outside the church, at the workplace, in your living room. A discipling people, a people who is presenting everyone ultimately as mature in Christ. That's the goal. It's the goal of every missionary who sets foot on a foreign shore. As soon as they see the people, they what their real goal is, not just to think, I'd like to see these people profess Christ and be Christians. Yes, but their longer term ultimate solution is, when they think really ahead, is I would like to one day see, see 
all kinds of mature believers, when I look at these people, I don't just see them as, I want to see them as Christians. I want to see them as teachers, preachers, disciples, and missionaries someday. That is the goal. And with God's help, we can be part of that.